This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Rami is an award-winning author of over two dozen nonfiction books, whose poems and short stories have been anthologized in over a dozen volumes and whose prayers are used in prayer books around the world. Rami received rabbinical ordination from the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion and holds a PhD in religion from Union Graduate School. A congregational rabbi for 20 years, Rabbi Rami is currently adjunct professor of religious studies at Middle Tennessee State University, where he also directs The Writer's Loft, MTSU's creative writing program, and is co-director of One River Wisdom School, a training program in the perennial philosophy. With Sounds True, Rami has published the new audio series, How to Be a Holy Rascal, and is working on a forthcoming book called Holy Rascals, Advice for Spiritual Revolutionaries. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Rami and I spoke about what makes somebody a holy rascal and two of the hallmarks of holy rascality, endless curiosity and boundless compassion. We talked about his background as a rabbi and why he left congregational leadership and what it might mean to practice what he calls non-dual Judaism. We talked about his mystical experiences of encountering God as a mother figure and the importance of these encounters for burning away tendencies to cling and hold on and how this introduced Rami to a state he calls freefall. And finally, we talked about the importance of ecstatic experience and the role of holy rascals in our time. Here's my conversation with Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Rami, normally I refer to you as Rabbi Rami, but I wonder if maybe I should start calling you Rascal Rami. What do you think? No, too formal. Definitely too formal. Puts too much pressure. Rabbi, you know, you can earn a degree in that, but rascal, that's a a lifetime achievement award. So no, I haven't earned it yet. Okay. Well, I won't refer to you then in that way. Rabbi Rami, tell me a little bit about what it means to be a holy rascal. What makes someone a holy rascal? This esteemed term. Yeah. So, you know, in my mind, a holy rascal is somebody who loves, who loves religion too much to leave it in the hands of professionals. <laughs> so I think that's, that's really, a, I just made that up, but I think that's a good definition. Someone who loves religion too much to leave it in the hands of professionals. Professionals take it so seriously that they miss the point. I mean, for me, the point of religion, religion is a, 
way that human beings make meaning out of the raw existential facts of our existence. And the facts, you know, our, our, our experience changes, so the meaning changes, religion should be fluid. But when you put it in the hands of professionals, it becomes deadly. It's fixed. It's, it's shallow or, or even hollow. It just becomes a series of things you say or do and has no, no depth to it. Now, obviously, I'm being very, I'm, I'm saying this with a broad brush, but still, Holy Rascal is someone who wants to put the, the spark back into, into religion, who wants to really make religion something that is transformative rather than simply imitative. So here at the beginning of our conversation, you became Rabbi Rami, which, you know, to be called a rabbi means that you took on a certain professional role, if you will, within the Jewish religion. At the same time, you're Rabbi Rami without a formal congregation, if you will, at this point in your rabbinical life. And what I'd love to know right here at the outset is how you became a rabbi, and then how you became, if you will, a renegade rabbi, which is how I think of you. Well, I really appreciate the renegade part. <laughs> you know, I, I became a rabbi because of uh, my Zen master, uh, Joshi Suzaki Roshi. My, my plan throughout my junior, senior year of high school, into college, my plan was to become a, a, an academic in, in Buddhist studies. I, it was my Buddhism was my passion, practice as well as theory, and I really thought I'd get a PhD in Buddhist studies and teach that somewhere. And I was working with, I, had, I was very lucky and I was invited to become a full-time student at Smith College, even though it's Smith College for women. There were, if I'm not mistaken at that time, and this is in the uh, 72, 73, I was, there were eight men on campus. We couldn't live on campus. You couldn't even eat on campus. You could hardly pee on campus. That was the, the most difficult thing. But uh, I was invited to study full-time at Smith under, uh, in the religion department, specifically under uh, Professor Uno, Tetsu Uno. And um, he introduced me to Suzaki Roshi, who would come, he would actually come out to Spencer Abbey to work with Father Thomas Keating and the monks at the Abbey. But after he, would, he was done with them, he would come to Smith College and run uh, a retreat uh, at, at Smith. And on one of these, uh, he was talking to me privately and he knew I was, I don't know how he knew, maybe Tai Uno told him, but he knew I was planning on going to graduate school for Buddhism. And he thought that was a terrible idea. And he backed me, literally backed me into a corner, right up his, you know, that, his face and my face. And he said, nope, don't go to graduate school. If you really want to learn Buddhism, you move to the monastery with him, Mount Baldy, and study Japanese and really practice Zen. That's how you do it. And that was definitely not me. I guess I knew I couldn't couldn't pull that off. So I just it sort of just exploded out of me, and I said, "No, Roshi, I can't do that. I'm going to become a rabbi." Well, it was news to me. <laughs> I was planning to be a PhD in Buddhist professor. No, I'm going to be a rabbi. And then he just smiled and he said, "Oh, good, be a rabbi." 
be Zen rabbi. And I said, okay, I'll be a Zen rabbi. <laughs> Thanks. And that's, that's, that's as much as I visited the monastery, but I didn't want to live there. So that's how the idea started. And when I went into Jewish studies more seriously, I found that there was a whole dimension there that really did speak to me. It wasn't the conventional. It wasn't the stuff that I learned in, you know, growing up in an Orthodox synagogue or, or any of my actual lived Jewish experience. But it was the, the mystical and how some of the modern rabbis that I was studying with took some of these mystical ideas of non-duality and cast them in a more contemporary form that could work in a synagogue, theoretically. None of them had synagogues to test it out, but that's what I was going to do. I was going to take this non-dual Judaism, transform it into a language that uh, 20th and then 21st century Jews could grasp, and make my synagogue a think tank for exploring that kind of Jewish thinking and practice. And I, I did that for 20 years, but eventually I had to leave. That was enough. Let's not skip over that part. I want to, at some point, circle back around about non-dual Judaism and what that might actually look like and sound like in a tradition that most people think of as a theistic tradition. So we'll get right. back to that. But talk to me about 20 years congregational life and the decision to leave and why it didn't have enough holy rascality, I'm presuming. That's why you had to leave. But unpack that for me. Well, the synagogue, I started the synagogue myself. I mean, when, I, when you graduate in the reform movement, there's a placement process. And I think you're supposed to start out as an assistant and you work yourself up to an associate or maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. And it's sort of controlled by the union. And eventually you get your own synagogue. I am not a team player. I knew I couldn't work for anybody. Uh, my approach to Judaism was so off the wall that no rabbi would, would stand for it. And I couldn't pretend not to believe what I believed. So I needed to start my own synagogue. And I, I did. I had some friends and we just started it in Miami, Florida, uh, where they lived. And I put an ad in the paper for, I don't know what we said, but it was for an unconventional Rosh Hashanah New Year's service. And people, about 80 people came and 20 people stuck around long <laughs> enough to form a synagogue. So, and it was a weird place. I mean, we didn't have a cancer, so we had whale song instead, you know, recorded whale songs. And it was, it was really sort of, sort of, now I look back at it, I go, oh no, that was really silly. But I didn't know what else to do. So I did what I did and, and it caught on a little bit. Uh, and it was a think tank. I mean, I rewrote the liturgy several times because like you said, the, the classic, the classical liturgy is incredibly dualistic. It's all about God as a male superpower somewhere. And, and I didn't believe that. I didn't believe that since I was a kid. So yeah, I had to rewrite everything. Uh, but, but I would challenge the notion that non-duality has no room for theism. Uh, because I think, and one of my teachers said, look, if God is everything, then God is also, could also be experienced anyway as the other. And I've had experiences of God as mother. And it was clearly, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't talking to myself or I wasn't, um, it wasn't simply a, a psychological projection of myself. Something was there, something was happening. I just don't think it's the ultimate thing. So you could probably experience God as 
a personality of some sort, as long as you didn't take it as absolute. Uh, but anyway, so I rewrote the liturgy and I was constantly tinkering with the holidays and their meanings. And But eventually I wanted, everything was, was too wordy. I kept stripping the words down and I needed more silence in the service. And if it's a community, multi-generational community, you just can't ask people to come in with their little kids and sit quietly, even for, well, I was going to say 20 minutes, even for five minutes. I mean, it's just too difficult. And people didn't join the synagogue in order to be silent. They you know, joined for other reasons. So it was harder and harder for me to get what I wanted out of the synagogue. And people were very happy with what we had. So we experimented with actually opening up a meditation center on the property. But in the end, they said, no, we really like what we have and we don't want to change it. And I was moving in a different direction and not just more contemplative, but also beyond the boundaries of Judaism. I mean, I'm very, back then, I guess we would have called it interfaith and then interspiritual, but, but now I'm just, I'm much more interested in perennial wisdom, the, you know, the wisdom that the mystics teach regardless of the tradition out of which they come. And that's where I was moving. And Judaism was one language among many, but I was becoming more and more multilingual and my sermons were becoming sort of a, a hybrid of teachings from so many different traditions. People said, well, why is this Jewish anymore? And I said, oh, <laughs> well, that's a good point. Why am I still here if I'm not doing, you know, a classically or, or a, a, a more more confined or, or, or focused Jewish thing. So I, I had to leave. I just couldn't serve them the way they needed to be served. Well, I think you're pointing to something really important, which is as somebody deepens in a path at a certain point, I think as one's maturity increases and the deeper you go, you do find this multilingual access, if you will, and does that mean then that there's no room to continue to lead and express in the mother tongue, if you will, that you've been taught and to lead other people on that path? Or is this just what happened for you? It just wasn't right for you anymore. Yeah, it's, it's personal to me. I mean, I, I spend lots of time with, for example, Father Thomas Keating. I mean, he's clearly Catholic, but... I would also say he's interspiritual, but he hasn't he hasn't dropped the Catholic, you know, and he's still alive and he's still clearly Catholic. So so no, I think you can go very, very deep in your own tradition and, and remain with that as your mother tongue. Um, but I couldn't. I mean, I guess being monolingual just didn't work for me. You know, we're sort of pushing this language analogy, but but speaking only the Jewish language that didn't work. There are things you can say. I mean, my best definition of God comes from St. Paul in the book of Acts, where he defines God as that in which we live and move and have our being. That sounds like the Tao to me. You know, that, that, that's, now I call St. Paul Rabbi Saul, so I can, I can fudge it and say, look, he's a, he says he's a Pharisee. He's a Jewish guy at a, in a Jewish place talking to Jewish people, not exclusively, but many. And so his definition clearly reflects a, a Jewish bent, and that's fine with me. There, you know, that's great if you can find that kind of teaching in Judaism. But when I'm talking, whether it's 
you know, lecturing in the United States or India or wherever I go, I just can't, I can't limit myself just to Jewish terminology. It just doesn't work for me anymore. So, so it's personal. Part of the reason I'm going down this lane, if you will, and I'm still going to call you Rabbi Rami as I do, is that I think a lot of people are starting to have this experience of interspirituality, if you will, or that what's alive for them is what they're reading in the Tao Te Ching, as well as their contemplative prayer practice. And yet, you know, do I still belong to a synagogue? Does that make sense? Is it okay for me to feel this deep draw to so many different traditions? And where does that land for me as a spiritual practitioner? I'm just in, I'm in a confused soup. I wonder what you would say to those people who feel that sense of soupiness, and yet they want to raise their kids in a tradition, and it's a confusing landscape. Well, I mean, if, if there were actually someone sitting in front yeah. of me, and the first thing I'd say is, if you feel that way, why would you want to raise your children in a, in a specific path? Uh, you know, if, in, in other words, if you're, if you're identifying as Jewish, but your practice is, is much broader, and your thinking is much broader, and uh, why would you want to and you have to sort of overcome a lot of Jewish stuff like chosen people and male gods and you know, supernatural. Why would you want to bring up kids in a system that they're going to have to outgrow or they're going to have to unlearn? I mean, to, if, if I were counseling someone, I would say, I mean, this, this is my definition of the perennial wisdom tradition. It's got four points. Number one, it's that non-duality that everything is simply a manifesting of a single reality. You can call it Allah, you can call it mother, you can call it God, you can call it nature, Tao, whatever you want to call it. But there's, there's just one reality uh, of which everything is a, is a part and expression. Number two, human beings have the innate capacity to know that reality. So whether you do it through meditation or chanting or gardening or walking or swimming or whatever, prayer, um, we're, we're built to know this. The third one is when you do know it, it carries an ethic of universal compassion and justice. And the fourth point is, I think this is the highest thing that human beings can strive for, uh, this awakening and, the, and living out the ethics that comes with it. So if someone would say, well, you know, how do I raise my children? I would say raise them in the perennial wisdom tradition. And then if you're, if you're Jewish, find Jewish expressions of perennial wisdom rather than start with Jewish conventional notions and have them, I don't know, have to outgrow them and, and find perennial wisdom later. I don't know if that makes sense. No, you, it does. And just whether it's someone who was raised Jewish and is now looking what they want to pass on to their children or somebody who came from an Episcopal background or whatever background, I think when it comes to raising children, at least this is what I hear from people that I know who now have young children, I want them to be part of a community. You know, I, I have my own meditative path, but I want my kids to feel connected and that there's a ritual that we go to every week. And I hear what you're saying is find a religious institution that really represents this perennial viewpoint. But that's not that easy, Rabbi Rami. In a lot of no. cities, you're not going to find such organized opportunities. And then if you're not providing right. an organized opportunity your family doesn't have the chance to connect with other families in this way. And I think it's a real conundrum for people. 
Well, I think it's a conundrum at the moment because this is somewhat new. But I imagine that if people put out feelers through social media looking for some kind of community or to create some kind of community that meets in my house or you know something like that, I, I think that they might be able to connect with like-minded people. I mean, what, what troubles me, I mean, I go to synagogues, I speak at lots of synagogues, and they're, they're, the rabbis are well-educated and well-meaning and compassionate and, 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 and concerned with social justice and all the things that synagogues are supposed to do. But they're locked into a, a, a story that I find really troublesome. You know, it's in the, I found it troublesome last century. I still find it troublesome. And that is the whole notion that um, Jews are God's chosen people. We have the one true revelation. God dabbles in real estate. and Israel is it. It carries with it <laughs> so much baggage that we should let go. Uh, the same thing if, if you're a Christian. And, and you belong to a church that teaches original sin. Are you kidding me? Do I really need that story in my life? So, I mean, I, I, I preach at a lot of, or, or do seminars at a lot of churches, and people are still suffering from original sin. And, you know, they, they can't, they, they don't have enough faith in Christ to have him heal it. So, you know, they, what do they do? And I say, well, you know, convert to Islam, convert to Judaism. We never heard of it. So it, these stories that we impose upon people, I mean, that, to go back to where we started, I mean, that's the work of the holy rascal, is to take the stories that are doing so much damage, these religious stories that are doing so much damage, and say, they're just stories. People made them up for political reasons, sociological reasons, to, to elevate an elite and keep them in power. I mean, there's all kinds of, of secular reasons why these stories are there, but they're not true. They're stories. They can be reinterpreted or they can be dropped. Um, but if they're, if they're hurtful and unhealthy, they, they've got to be either fixed or, or let go. So, so I'm really questioning the whole notion of if you don't, if you don't fit in the community that you're going to join, if, if you're really going to be on the fringe, do you want to belong to that community? But I understand the need for community. I get that side of it. You understand the need for community. And here we are, we're in this transitional phase. Are you suggesting to people, you know, I'm going to now have, you know, holy rascal gatherings. I know you're not calling them holy rascal gatherings. People could call it whatever they wanted. And I'm going to, you know, reach out in social media and do this in my house. And before you know it, I'm going to be playing whale songs. I don't know how to structure a gathering oh, no, like this. Whale yeah, no, but I don't know how to structure a gathering. I don't, you know, I'm busy all week long. Now I've got, you know, five families in my house on the weekend. What are we going to do together? I'm not trained in this. I mean, how do people become empowered in this gap phase? Right. That's a great question. So, I mean, partly I do have something called Holy Rascal Revivals, where I would come and teach you how to do that. But, but there are probably places you can go, like a Unitarian church. Um, they don't call it Unitarian Fellowship. Um, maybe there are very, very liberal churches and synagogues in, in your neighborhood that, that would work. But there is this whole house church movement where people who don't feel comfortable at church are just getting together, they read, I don't know what, you know, they pray something, they read something, and then they just have conversations. Um, it might just, I mean, the, the Havarah movement, the Jewish fellowship movement in the 60s and 70s, you know, I think what people were hungry for was 
conversation. And then the ritual grew out of that. And they created the people who started it, or some of them wrote this three volume, like it's called the Jewish catalog. It was the Jewish version of the whole earth catalog and said, this is how you do it. Anybody can do it. Here's how you can weave your own prayer shawl, your own talit. You can, here's how you bake a challah. So, so it, it may be that that's the way it goes, but I, I absolutely recognize that we're in this transitional moment and it's, it's difficult. Uh, I mean, my, my kids, I have a one-year-old grandson and they're struggling with how to raise him because they, they want him to have an identity, but they don't want the identity to be, well, I guess, exclusivist or, you know, somehow when you, when you have an identity, then as soon as you're in a group, there's the out group and they're trying to avoid all that, but it may not be avoidable. There may have to be, I don't, I don't know how you do it, but it's something that, that people are, are wrestling with. I mean, I had the luxury of being, you know, 65 years old. I could care less. Mm-hmm. I don't need a community. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. so. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to SoundsTrue.com backslash free. That's SoundsTrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, now I want to go back to these four principles, if you will, that you talked about on a perennial wisdom path, and yeah. the first being non-duality. And I think when a lot of people hear that term, it's a little abstract and confusing. And so can you explain what you mean by it? Well, what I mean by it is that, well, what I said, I mean, everything, you and I, the, the chair I'm sitting in, the, the floor my feet are resting on, Everything that exists is an expression of a singular reality. I am connected to everything. I mean, it's the Buddhist notion of you know, interdependent. So, so that's how I understand it. There's nothing separate. Uh, there's, um, there's nothing that is really alien to me. Even if I don't like it, it's still a part of that larger reality uh, that, in which I exist. So that, that's how I understand it. It's, it's um, still abstract. I mean, it has to be something that's experienced more than talked about. Because as soon as you talk about it, it becomes an object. And it, that already is, is somewhat dualistic. So uh, it has to be something you experience. And that takes contemplative practice of one sort or another. Uh, and then in that experience, all sense, this is my this is what happened to me uh, in, in through those practices or triggered by those practices. I don't know how you want to put it exactly, but I, I, I experienced the dropping away of, of Rami. Um, and when Rami came back, there was this sense of universality. I mean, the, it was like the whole, you know, I, I just knew that there was nothing else but this with a capital and maybe you don't even need the capital T. There was nothing else but this reality, and, and it was me, and I was it, 
without, you know, taking any kind of ownership of it, not that egoic uh, sense of, oh, I am God. But I was, it was clear that God was me. Um, I don't know what else you can say about that other than, well, I don't know what else you can say about that. I should really stop because everything I'm saying is, is still going to be abstract. That's okay. I think it's helpful and it, it shows how you use this term non-duality. And you also reference the idea of non-dual Judaism. And, you know, from my own experience right. going to temple as a young practicing Reform Jew, we prayed to God. There was me praying to God. There wasn't a lot of experiences of this kind of unitive consciousness that you're describing. So when I hear something like non-dual Judaism, I'm like, question mark, what is that? I'd love to understand that more. And you spent a lot of time articulating that for your congregation. So help our listeners who are interested in that. Well, non, non-dual Judaism takes the trope of Judaism, like the oneness of God, you know, the, or, or the notion that God is one, and lifts it out of the numerical into the, the non-dual. So, for example, I don't know, mid-1700s, uh, the founder of Chabad Judaism, Lubavitch Judaism, uh, Shnur Zalman of Liadi, said that when you say the Shema, you know, the traditional English is horrible, but, you know, Hero Israel, the Lord, which is a terrible use of, terrible translation, but Hero Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he said, if you're saying this to remind yourself that God is one and not three, like the Trinity, then you really only have to say it a couple of times when you're a kid and you get the idea. Why do we have to say it multiple times a day? And, and his answer to his own question was because we're not talking about uh, a numerical quality. We're talking about non-duality, oneness itself, where, where you're saying to yourself, don't forget, God is everything. God is, is the one and there isn't anything else. And you have to continually remind yourself of that. So in our liturgy, or when we would come to the, to re- the recitation of the Shema, I would always use that as what we call a kavanah, to set the intention of the prayer, to try to get the congregant not to affirm that God is numerically one, but to remember or awaken or realize that God is the only thing that actually exists. Uh, and, and there are lots of texts that, I mean, there's, there's something in, and that was from the 1800s, 18th century, but you can find Bible texts in Deuteronomy. I get my chapter and verse right. I, I think it's chapter four of Deuteronomy, verse 39. Um, it says, know this, know this day and take it to heart that God is in the heavens above and the earth below, and there is nothing else. Ain't owed. There is nothing else. And traditionally, conventionally, they'll, they'll, the rabbi will say, well, that means there's no other God. But the mystical or the non-dual reading of this is nothing else. There's just that. And you're part of it. You know, we're all oceans on the infinite, we're all waves on that infinite ocean. Uh, so there's a lot, I mean, I could go through other texts that I like rack my little memory here. But um, I mean, let, let me give you another. This is from a guy called Moshe Cordovero in the 1600s, a Kabbalist, Jewish mystic. And this is how I remember it. But God, God is found in all things, and all things are found in God. 
everything is in God, God is in everything and beyond everything, and there's nothing other than God. I mean, that's non-duality to me. Uh, so that's what you want in, in, in a non-dual Judaism. You want to be able to realize that. So that means your holidays have to be interpreted through that lens. The rituals of, um, I mean, I, for me, like kosher. There's a lot, I mean, I grew up with kosher, and I sort of drilled into me. And while I play with it by being a vegetarian, I never break it. I I don't eat pork. I don't mix, well, I don't eat meat, so it's easier. But I don't eat um, unkosher things, uh, broadly defined. So I don't need the kosher stamp on the product. I think that's just about money and politics. But um, I, I, I just don't eat things that aren't kosher. I, it's just sort of the way I was raised, and I can't imagine eating that stuff. So I, I've been conditioned by my parents to do that. But the reason I do it isn't because God said don't do it. I don't think God has a dietary plan for our lives. I don't think God has a plan for our lives at all. But you know, I don't, I don't think God sets a diet. Um, I do it because my understanding of kashrut, of kosher, is about, since I have to consume food and other things, it's about consuming in a way that honors the fact that we're all part of this infinite reality. So consume as little as possible, consume as um, justly as possible, compassionately as possible. And that's how I would define kosher. So I, I would recast, when I had a synagogue, but still in my own life, I recast the holidays and the rituals and the traditions through that non-dual lens. If it, if it isn't, if, if my Jewish practice isn't from, I don't know if we're just promoting or isn't continually reminding me of, of the non-duality in which we live and move and have our being, then I'm not doing it right. It needs to be reworked. Does that, does that make sense? I'm not... It does. It does. And I want to circle back a moment and tease something out because you briefly mentioned in terms of non-duality, this oneness, also including the experience of something that seems outside of yourself. You mentioned right. uh, God appearing in a mother form. And I know that you have had experiences here when you were a rabbi with your congregation of having visions personal visitations, if you will, from the Virgin Mary. And what I'd like to know, first of all, let's just take it slow. What actually happened? Are we recording this? We're recording this, <laughs> Rabbi Rami. Tell me, first of all, just this like, what, what actually happened? You're a renegade rabbi. You're on your holy rascal path. You can speak the truth here. Yeah, well, being retired also helps. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, what actually happened was... Yeah. Just the, the phenomenology. I want, I want to just first start there. Yeah, what yeah. happened? So, yeah. so here's where it started. Here's where it started. I'm sitting at my kitchen table in Miami, Florida, having breakfast before I go to synagogue. And I'm looking at the Miami Herald, and there's this gorgeous oil painting of the Virgin Mary on the, above the fold on the Herald. And I can't take my eyes off it. It's just, it's modern. It's watercolor. It's, I think, it looked like watercolor. It just, it was absolutely, I couldn't breathe. It was so gorgeous. And then I said, what, you know, what museum is this at? What galleries is this at? I got to know. So I flipped the paper, you know, over. So under the fold, the article, 
And it turns out it's an oil slick on the glass window pane of a bank. I think it's Clearwater, Florida. Could be Stillwater, Florida. I don't remember, but it's a small in another town in Florida. And tens of thousands of people are are making pilgrimage to see the the Virgin Mary on the, you know, in this glass. So I did. I wasn't one of them. I saw it in the newspaper. That was enough for me. And I realized how the mind works. The brain is designed, you know, through evolution to look at patterns. It keeps us from being gobbled up by saber-toothed tigers. So, so I, I understand the science of why what I saw isn't what I saw, but it was what I saw. And it was so clearly that. And even knowing that it was on a window, an oil slick on a bank, I still could see nothing else. And that was the first sighting. <laughs> Sounds silly, but there you go. The first sighting of the Virgin. And then she just would appear in, in, in different places. I, I mean, at one point I was walking along, I do a lot of walking, and I just said, come on, this is ridiculous. Uh, if, if you're real, show yourself now. And I looked over at some place and bam, I saw her again. So, on the one, so phenomenologically, you brought the word up, phenomenologically, that's what was happening to me. Intellectually, I was going, this is crap. I don't believe anything that's happening, but it's happening. I, I don't think it's really the Virgin. It's not Our Lady of South Miami. And you know, <laughs> I'm not going to be, you know, bring some message to the world because I'm having this experience. But it just kept happening. And eventually, it wasn't just Mary. Now it becomes Kali, it becomes Saraswati, it becomes you know, more, you know, figures that don't actually have form, you know, a divine feminine, formless aspects of the divine feminine, like Chokhmah, wisdom in the Bible, or Shekhinah, the presence of the divine. Uh, so I, I, would, I would just sense her all over. And, and I didn't like it. It wasn't that I was like, oh, how cool is this? It was, how annoying is this? It's just what you said. <laughs> I, I can't tell anybody. I'm, I'm a rabbi. We don't have visions like this. And we, if we're going to have them, we should have them of you know, Golda Meir and not the Virgin <laughs> So I went to a couple of people. I went to Sister Jose Habde. We were teaching together. And, and you, I don't know if you're familiar with her or, or our listeners are, but she is deceased now, but she was a Franciscan nun and a Native American. Uh, I think she was Lakota Sioux, but I can't, can't hold me to that, but Native American medicine woman. And I went to her with this and she just laughed at me and said, no, no, once this happens, you have to talk about this. You have to teach about this. I went to Andrew Harvey, who is my dear friend and teacher and a tremendous devotee of the divine mother in all her forms. And I said, how do you get this to stop? And he said, you don't, you don't understand. I mean, it doesn't, you don't, it doesn't stop. It just gets more and more and more. And his understanding was more from a, at least the way I heard it from a Kali perspective, that this was the divine feminine was a fire that was going to burn away all the BS that I was clinging to. And that becomes my actual experience. But if you want to hear one more uh, thing that I absolutely experience, but I don't believe a word of it. <laughs> you know, I try to this late. I'm too academic. I'm too much of a, you know, a philosopher to take this literally. And yet it absolutely happened. I was uh, at um, La Casa de Maria, which is a wonderful retreat center in Santa Barbara, California. 
and they, it's a Mary-centered place, and there are statues of Mary around. And I invited the community that was studying with me. I think we were studying one of my books on the divine feminine. And I said, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm of an age where I do, not for any spiritual reason, but because my bladder insists. But if you wake up in the middle of the night um, and you want to do this, I suggested, you know, go to the bathroom if you have to do that. And then get dressed or wrap yourself up in a blanket and go out and wander around and find a statue of Mary that calls to you and maybe do the Ave Maria, the Hail Mary there. So, you know, if I asked them to do it, I certainly would do it. So I woke up in the middle of the night and I went to the bathroom and then I uh, put some clothes on and wrapped myself up in a blanket. And there is one statue of Our Lady of Guadalupe that I always gravitate toward when I'm at La Casa de Maria. And I sat there, there's a bench, and I sat there and I meditated there and I, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace. And I just, I, I'm in a Catholic place doing a Catholic thing, when in, when in Rome kind of idea. And then I had this experience of, out of the blue. I wasn't asking for guidance. I wasn't asking for anything. And I hear this voice from, not exactly from the statue, and certainly the concrete mouth wasn't moving, <laughs> but I heard this voice that was clearly Mary's voice. And she said, do you know why I'm called the perpetual virgin? So I have to think back, what, I don't even, what's that phrase mean? I think the idea was that even though she had Jesus and then she had maybe other children, uh, you know, people argue about that, uh, maybe older siblings uh, than Jesus, that she was still a virgin. And you know, I said, no, I haven't got a clue. And she said, it's because I am the mother of all the living, which is what uh, Adam calls Eve in the book of Genesis. Uh, he calls Eve the mother of all the living. She says, I am the mother of all the living. And I, my love for each uh, being that I birth is so all-consuming that it's as if that were the only being I ever birthed. Is that, did I say that clearly? Her love is so absolute for each of us, yeah. so absolute that it's as if we're the only one that, that, that she ever birthed. So I was really, that was moving, but that was it. So then I went back to sleep and the next morning I shared, you know, we went around and you want to talk about what happened. So I shared that and it was moving to me, but it was tear inducing to several of the Catholics in the, the group that was with me for the weekend. And I asked them what, what why, What's happening? Why, why the tears? And I mean, I, it was hard for me to understand everything they were saying because they come from this rich Catholic background that I don't have. But they said they wrestled with this idea of the Virgin Mary their entire lives. They did not understand it. And now, because of what she said, they understand it. And I thought, wow, how cool is that? You know, if, if I were in the religion starting business, I would have said, well, she speaks to me all the time and I'll be back at six and you know, <laughs> make a donation and I'll tell you what else she said. Okay, but I'm interested in one comment you made sort of as a yeah. off-the-cuff comment. You said, you know, her appearance in my life served to uh, help burn away the BS. And yeah. I'd like to know how that happens, how that process has happened or is happening in your life. How is your BS being burned off? So, you know, I cling to things 
both tangible material things, books especially, um, but also um, relationships and ideas. And, and what I experienced in this period, and, and I still have a connection with her, but, but we're talking in the past. Uh, when it was the most intense, what I experienced was loss, but no, wait, not loss. And certainly not release, but theft. <laughs> you know, I would be clinging to an idea about God or clinging to, to you know, some concept that I use to define myself and my, <clears throat> my religion and, and my spiritual understanding. And it would suddenly appear nonsensical to me. And I went through a, a period of... of the best phrase I know is neti neti from the Sanskrit, you know, not this, not that. And, and it would be like, you saying, no, sweetheart, don't you see that's not true. It's just another idea that some guy made up, drop that one. And then I said, okay, but I got this one. This one is cool, right? No, no, that doesn't work. And it's every time she would somehow challenge me to look more deeply into the isms and ideologies that I was clinging to, I realized, oh my God, it's not, that's another thing I just got to let go of. So I don't know if this is answering your question exactly. It's not like she stepped into my life and said, give me that and pulled it out of my hand. But <laughs> somehow holding these things up to my experience of being in her presence left me with nothing to hold. And now I worry that I'm clinging to the perennial wisdom. You know, so I'm still holding to something. My, my, what Andrew Harvey told me was, one of the analogies that he gave me was that this is uh, encountering the mother this way is, he calls it the fierce love, fierce grace of his guru. He uses fierce grace. My, my own sense of it is, I call it a searing love. It's a love that burns away all these things that I'm clinging to. And he said it's like a divine or a, a free fall into the divine and that we keep clinging to things because we're afraid of falling, but there is no bottom. So it's just, it's just this endless um, fall into the infinite arms of the divine mother, you know, it's poetry, but th this endless fall into the, the arms of the divine mother. And you have to learn to live without ground. You, to, to live in the free fall, but there's, there's no bottom to it. So everything I would cling to eventually goes away. Now I like the idea, which of course makes me cling to that idea. So I have to even drop that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, my, my spiritual practice, uh, I don't, didn't really think of it this way, but my spiritual practice is, at the moment is holding each thing that I notice I'm holding up to the divine, the searing love of the divine mother and letting her, you know, burn that one off and then fall. And then it's, oh, I'm holding onto this one. Let that one go. I met with Father Thomas Keating a couple of months ago. I was teaching in Aspen and his um, monastery, St. Benedict's is um, in Snowmass, because I don't know, 45 minutes away. And uh, we talked, he, he said, could you come out and see me? And I hadn't seen him for a couple of years. So I went out to see him. He's getting on very close to the end of his life, I think. And so we talked about that. And I said, well, what are you doing to prepare for the end? And, you know, this is 
radio, so it, you can't really envision it. But he makes this gesture of holding something in his hands, you know, like uh, like he's got water in his, the two palms of his hands held together. And then he opens his arms and lets it fall. And he says, that's how I've lived my life. I have I hold Thomas, you know, in my hands and then I let Thomas go. And every time I find myself holding on to Thomas, I let Thomas go. And then I said, well, what happens at the end? And he said, where do you go? And he says, no, at the end, there's nothing left. So there's no place to go. And that's what I'm experiencing and have been for a long time, that I'm holding on to Rami, defining Rami in one way or another. And then through, you know, Ram Dass's fierce grace or, you know, my sense of searing love, having that taken away. But it's no longer frightening. Now it's a blessing. One less thing to schlep around. Well, I'm certainly glad I asked about these appearances. That's very, very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Rabbi Rami, Sounds True is releasing a new audio series with you. It's called How to Be a Holy Rascal, a Magical Mystery Tour to Liberate Your Deepest Wisdom, Access Radical Compassion, and Set Yourself Free. And there are a few different, I know, it's, it's me, no, no small promise. Yeah, it's, it's a, right, no small promise. Yeah, deepest wisdom, radical compassion, and set yourself free. Sounds good to me. And right. in the series, there are a few different teachings that I want to highlight here in this conversation and see if we can sneak this in before we conclude. One is that you talk about two of the hallmarks of a holy rascal, endless curiosity and boundless compassion. These were... Right. Those are key. Yeah. Tell me a bit about each. So, endless curiosity. A holy rascal approaches religion in a way that some people think is snarky, but that isn't... If it, if it really comes across snarky, then we're doing something wrong. I'm, I'm so interested and why people believe what they believe. I mean, I taught at the University Comparative Religion for 10 years. Uh, I, I'm always asking, I was always asking my students, why, not just what you believe, but why that? Why do you believe that? If we, if we go into religion and say, what you believe is stupid, or it's so different than what I believe, it must be wrong, then we, we get nowhere. But if, you, if we, our approach to, to people's beliefs is, not simply what, but why? What does it do for you? Why does it? Why are you attached to that? And I don't mean attached in a bad way. I mean, why do you love that idea? How does it? What does it say to you? There's no end to just how interesting people become to me, anyway. At the same time, I believe that 99.999 percent of what we believe is bullshit, and. And I want to make that point also, but I want to do it in a way that's compassionate. <laughs> no, that's the challenge. Curiosity is not so difficult. Trying to be content, compassionate when you're trying to say to people, look, let's practice neti neti here and let that go. It isn't that. It isn't that. Um, that's, that's the real challenge. But you have to have this boundless compassion, both in two ways. One have compassion for the person who's trapped in an idea that really is not healthy. I mean, I know so many people who, I'm not, I, don't, I know we're going to run out of time, but very briefly, I, I worked with a family who had a 16-year-old son, an Orthodox Jewish family, 16-year-old boy who suffered from very horrible disease. He was never going to make it to 17. 
And his family, not his parents, but his closest friends were his two cousins. And they and his uncle and aunt uh, uh, abandoned the boy and wouldn't allow their boys to play with him anymore, to even hang out with him anymore, because they told themselves a story that this kid had this horrible disease because God was punishing him for some evil he had done in a past life, and they didn't want their boys tainted by the evil of this kid. That story, because that to me, it's all it is is a story. That story ruined their their friendship and their family and left this boy totally isolated uh, in the last months of his life. So lots of what we believe is unhealthy in that way and in many, many other ways. And I want to be able to point that out if possible, but I want to do it in a compassionate way, not in a way that says, boy, are you stupid that you believe that? But in some, and that's why primarily the tools of holy rascals are humor. Mm -hmm. Um, Because otherwise, you know, just standing up there and yelling at people doesn't get you anywhere. But if you can, if you can gently, graciously, with lots of humor, show this, the, the flip side of the belief, that sometimes is enough to have people drop it on the spot. Now, another theme that you bring up is speaking from your experience, not for your experience. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, this really comes from Father Thomas, and I appreciate the chance to, to honor him in this conversation this way. When I first started working with him in 1984 at the first no mass gathering, he had, and it went on for 30 some odd years, this thing, there were originally 12 of us from different traditions. And he said, you can, all of us contemplatives. And he said that when we talk, we can talk from our experience. What, what you were saying before the phenomenological aspect of, of our uh, religious lives, but you can't talk for them. You can't say, we Jews believe or we Catholics believe. You can't talk as if the experience were an absolute. It's simply your experience. So it's, it's not as radical as it might sound. It's sort of using I language rather than whatever you know, the, the other might be. I can't think of what it is right now. But it's, it's just simply owning your experience and not making it an absolute. It would radically change the way people talked about the spiritual path if they did just what you're describing. Be a big deal. I think it would be huge. I also think that most people would realize they don't have an experience. They just go through the motions. I mean, again, that's very blanket condemnation. But but when I go to churches and synagogues and, and other retreat centers and talk, most people they're not getting anything experiential out of their tradition. I mean, I, I go to a lot of synagogues. I mean, I, one of the things I'm interested in is ecstatic experience, which I've had through kirtan, through Hasidic music, primarily music. And when I go to synagogue and, and they take Hasidic melodies or, or sort of contemporary versions of Hasidic, Hasidic melodies, and they stop just before it starts, starts to get hot. You can see that people are, you know, it's like, like you're boiling water and the, and the bubbles are starting to come up, but there's not enough to actually have the water boil yet. And then you turn the water off. So people are, I think, hungry for some kind of real experience, but the clergy are afraid of it. And so they turn it off 
they oh, turn to page 14 now, as soon as they feel that something is happening. Why would the clergy be afraid of ecstatic experience? Because I think when you're in the ecstatic moment, you don't need clergy, you don't need the story, you don't need the ritual anymore, you don't need, everything is gone in that moment. That there's just this wild, ecstatic awakening to reality, and it's not Jewish, it's not Christian, it's not Buddhist, it's not secular, it's not, you know, it's nothing other than, than what it is without, you know, this unlabeled thing. And I think that scares clergy. They don't want that. Um, so they turn it down. And, and then, of course, you, there's always a concern that, well, maybe you can't stop it. And, and that I understand if you're trying to run a service and there's people there and maybe you're going to push somebody over the edge and they're going to have some kind of, you know, go into this kind of spiritual crisis, I, I, can, I get that could be a concern. Uh, but, but that's not what I think is actually happening. I think they're turning it off because they just feel uncomfortable with it altogether. Uh-huh. And are probably, or one idea, would be afraid of losing control themselves in the ecstatic experience. That, that would be true if, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you're giving them the benefit of the doubt that they could actually have the experience themselves. I think it's difficult to lead and have the experience because the leader is still trying to keep control. But sure, that once you slip into that, you know, then what happens? Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have any control. And that's, I mean, the, the entire things to me, and again, these are blanket statements, but religion, in, in one sense, is a way of controlling the ecstatic, controlling God, manipulating the thing, so it doesn't get out of hand. And, but I, I want to get out of hand, in a sense. I, I, I don't, I want to blow the whole thing up from the inside, not from the outside, like I'm, you know, destroying it, but go into it so deeply that, that that it explodes from the inside, from, from its own, uh, its own ecstatic power. It seems to me that's. I mean, just imagine taking communion and and taking it, uh, in a sense, hyper literally. But then it's going to lead us into poetry. But you're taking the the body and blood of God into your mouth. You know. Our, our mouths are one of the most intimate things about us. You know, when we're, we're little, everything goes in our mouth. That's how we know the world. And then when we're older, we restrict what goes into our mouths. And then when we fall in love, our mouth becomes you know, uh, a, 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 a tool for erotic pleasure. And here you're taking in through your mouth the body and blood of God. Now, if that doesn't lead you to some ecstatic inner explosion, I don't know what would, but it doesn't because the ritual keeps it what, under wraps or you know, keeps a, a lid on it so that you can't have that experience. Now, I've been to Matthew Fox's Cosmic Masses, and, and he spends hours before communion priming you for the ecstasy of communion. And, well, actually, I saw it um, with you at, at um, one of the Sounds True Awakenings. It was, it was amazing. Um, so, so there's, of course, you can't do that if you've got an hour and then you have to have a second service and you have to get people in and out. And, you know, the things that you have to do if you're having a church, synagogue, mosque, community. But 
ecstasy is 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 crucial in our lives, but society doesn't doesn't want us to have that experience. I think. Mm-hmm. And Matthew Fox, I would say, is a good example of a holy rascal. Would you agree with that? He's a good example. Oh, yes, people can appreciate. Absolutely, Matthew is a is a paradigmatic holy rascal. Okay, I'm going to try to just get one more theme in that you mention in the Magical Mystery Tour, which is your audio series, How to Be a Holy Rascal, which is acting as a blessing in the world. How important right. that is. Right. This is. How do we do it, Rabbi Rami? It's so important. Yeah, well, if I knew, I wouldn't have written that. <laughs> you know, I would have done it instead of write about or talk about it. No, I think, you know, it's it's in... The, the the wording comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verse 3. Uh, God calls to, and to me, it's, these are stories, but the wisdom of the story is still there. Is, is there. The story is a vehicle. So in the story, God calls to Abraham and Sarah and says, um, literally in Hebrew, it says, lech lecha, from your land and your country to, and your parents' house to a place I will show you. And then it goes on for a couple of verses and you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So the first part of that, lech lecha, it's usually translated as go forth in the English Bible. But lech means to walk, and lecha means into yourself. And it's an inner journey freeing yourself from the conditions of, and the Bible only mentions three, uh, nationality, ethnicity, and parental bias. But we would add you know, gender and religion and, you know, all the other narratives that, that uh, define us. So you make this inner journey, free yourself from those narratives so that when you encounter another being, because this is all the families of the earth, not all the human families. So when you encounter another being, you do so without um, conditions, without conditioning. And then what you experience when you see that other being, whether it's a a dog, because you and I love dogs, or a tree, or a human being. When you see that being, you're seeing the non-dual in this, in this unique manifestation. And the only thing you can do with regard to that other is, well, first of all, you know it's not really an other, but it's just you know, another wave of the divine, the singular divine ocean. But what you can do with, with that encounter, the only thing you can do with that encounter is to act as uh, a blessing, which would mean Act in a way that that uplifts, honors, defends, uh, feeds the person or the being's dignity, uh, and and does not in any way demean or demonize or diminish the other. Okay, Rabbi Rami, I just have one final question for you, which is the importance of holy rascals during this particular time in human history that we're in, where attendance at religious institutions are down, where the world is obviously in such a state of turmoil, where the environment is under such attack and the crisis we face in terms of species extinction, global warming. What do you think is the role and importance of the holy rascal now? So I would say a couple of things. Now, because this is huge, and we could have spent the whole hour on this. I, I would say a couple of things. To the extent that unhealthy stories are ruining the planet, stories about you know humans are on top, and we exploit, we can we can do whatever we want to the planet. 
therefore are used, stories like that, stories that lead them, lend credence, uh, and not just credence, that, that give an imprimata to uh, the destruction of species and the destruction of clean water and clean air and, and all this stuff. That the holy rascal, part of the holy rascal's task is to challenge those stories and to say, look, they have, the emperor has no clothes. These things are just made up for the benefit of whoever made them up and that we don't have to tell these stories anymore. We don't have to tell stories that otherize or demonize uh, people or, or the planet. So that that's part of it. Part of it is also, though, I would say that there are times of collapse. I, 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 my sense is that we are in a, the Kali Yuga. And I mean it more narrowly than the Hindu might, might use the term. I think we are in a time of collapse. I think that it's a, that there are necessary times, dark night of the soul kind of thing, where we are moving to a, a higher level of consciousness. But to do so, you have to go into the darkness to, to experience, to, to cleanse yourself of all the things that are holding us back. And that in those moments, what we need is this boundless compassion for one another. And I think that humor plays an incredibly important role in those times because humor allows us to shine a light even in the dark, that if we can laugh together, I mean, even just the biology of true laughter is a kind of Kundalini yoga. And when you're, you know, when you're really doing that hysterical belly laughing, uh, Sadaki Roshi once said to me, don't bother with Zazen meditation. Don't bother with Zen meditation. Just get up every morning, sit on the edge of your bed and start to laugh <laughs> and laugh until the laughter is real. And when the tears are rolling down your face, then just get up and go about your day. There's something about laughter that allows us to enter into these moments of, of collapse and darkness without losing our capacity to love. Um, so, so I think the rascal is really what's needed now more than I don't want to say more than ever, but definitely the rascal is needed now because the rascal can free us from these unhealthy stories, can help us play with symbol and ritual and myth in new ways so we can tell new stories and devise new ways of, of living them out. The, the rascal is at the, the cutting edge of where spirituality is going and isn't so concerned with conserving what what was, but is more concerned in playfully inventing what might be. So, so I, I think it's very timely. Rabbi Rami, thank you so much for being such a holy rascal in training on the path, the holy rascal path, and for helping <laughs> well, thank me you, in my own holy rascal training. Well, I appreciate that. And thank you for you know, bringing this stuff out, both the, the CD set or the audio series and then the book. I'm very, very grateful for, for that. Rabbi Rami Shapiro has released with Sounds True a new nine-hour audio teaching series called How to Be a Holy Rascal, a magical mystery tour to liberate your deepest wisdom, access radical compassion, and set yourself free. He's also publishing with Sounds True in the fall of 2017 a new book called Holy Rascals. Advice for Spiritual Revolutionaries. And thanks for the good laughs, Rabbi Rami, and also all the wisdom. I always love talking with you. Thank you so much. 
I love talking with you, Tammy. Thank you. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.